Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Well, welcome everyone to this latest edition of the P3 Podcast. I am not going to spend any time regarding the introduction today because I want to get straight into it because this guy has got an unbelievable brain and I want to plug into it just for the benefit of you. So today's guest, we're really fortunate to have Professor Greg White with us today. Greg, how are you doing, mate? I'm very well, thanks, mate. Thanks for having us on. No, no, not at all. Really appreciate you being on. Now, I want to get straight into it because I think we could talk for hours, as we did before we come <laughs> on air, running up 15 or 20 minutes, just chewing the fat. So looking at the 2021, reflecting on 2020, how was that year for you on a personal level? Do you know what? It was probably no different to anybody else's year, and that was very difficult. Multiple levels from a sort of personal family perspective. I've got three children. If we can remember back that far of homeschooling and the trauma of homeschooling for us. I mean, luckily, my wife's a teacher. I'm a teacher by training as well, but my wife is exceptional at it. So that definitely helps. But we underestimate the impact on children, actually. And I think, you know, they really did take the full brunt of it. It's such a formative period where friends are so important and that interaction is so important for their personal growth. It was difficult from that. I think from a business perspective, exceptionally difficult. Sadly, we had to close my practice on Harley Street for all sorts of different reasons. But when you run a footfall business and you choke off that footfall instantaneously for very long periods of time, it becomes impossible, irrespective of how good your business is to survive. But I think we learned a lot. And I think from a personal perspective, there's quite a lot of personal growth through that. I always run the mantra that there's no such thing as failure, just failure to learn. I look back on it, I think, what did I learn from that process and how am I going to use that in the future to grow? Yeah, and I think if you don't mind, we'll dig a little bit more into that because you and I are both client-facing. We go out there, we do our consultancy, our coaching in very similar fields, albeit at different levels. And it's really important for ourselves to reflect and learn and model what we're saying, what we're teaching and what we're engaging in conversation. So what was that biggest learning point for you doing 2020 then? Probably the biggest learning point was interesting because it runs into something I'm sure we'll chat about, a sort of new project that we're launching in the new year this year. And that is around really understanding how far people have to move. I think to some extent you can get sort of lost in this idea that everybody is within your silo, but there are so many silos. And actually when it comes to things like what I do around physical activity and health, I think it just shone a spotlight for me on how far an awful lot of people are off of the point of running a healthy lifestyle. And I think what that did, it's not necessarily pointing the finger at them, it's actually pointing the finger at me to say, actually, what we should be developing are interventions and procedures and frameworks and approaches that address those people specifically. I think it's all too easy just to go down the sort of mainstream middle of the road and assume that that's going to pick up everybody because it really doesn't. And I think what COVID did is actually shone a spotlight critically on a number of different areas. I think number one is that the socioeconomic inequality that we have in our population. Britain is probably the most hierarchical country in the world, I think, you know, when it comes to class. And I think what we saw through last year is we saw a widening of that socioeconomic divide. But what's interesting in that is that if you link that into things like health, what we do know is that at the lower socioeconomic demographic end of that spectrum, is where you have the greatest instance of things like obesity, type 2 diabetes, inactivity, etc. And so what we saw is not only a widening in terms of money, we actually saw a widening in terms of health. Health inequality grew. And I think interestingly, I sit on the advisory board for a charity called Her Spirit that works specifically within women. And I think what's interesting there is that there existed a gender gap in terms of health between men and women, particularly actually around physical activity, a significant gender gap. And that gender gap grew throughout 2020. 
I think something that I've learned from that is that what we do need to do is focus our approaches much more specifically, be much more bespoke about the people that we are talking to if we're going to get real, real change. What I was thinking then as you were chatting was around you can provide the opportunity, but some people are not in the right place or even in that background of being able to get the trainers on is always the most difficult thing is the quote, isn't it? Is that still the same thing when you're talking about those gaps between them? Is it a case of just getting started and doing something rather than nothing? I think you're absolutely right. Behaviour is incredibly complex. And I think probably the most difficult thing to do is change behaviour, both on a personal level, but also you know, as a leader, as a business leader, to change the behaviour of your staff, to change the behaviour of an industry is incredibly difficult to do. And I think that the way in which we do that, certainly from an individual perspective, is there's an awful lot of psychology within that. I think it's not just about providing the facilities, although albeit the facilities are really important. It's not just about time. It's interesting when you look at the hierarchy of excuses for not changing, people will always put time at the very top. And we've spoken about this before. But I do think it's just recognizing that behavior change is incredibly difficult to achieve. You've got to be robust and resilient in continuing to try to make that change. But I think as well, what you've got to be is flexible. What works for one person isn't going to work for all. And it's just, again, making sure you make that individualized sort of bespoke approach. You took the words right out of my mouth. And I think that bespoke personalized approach helps it resonate with the individual more. So they're more likely to buy into it. They own it. And therefore, they're more likely to see it through until those new habits are formed. I think we can be really prescriptive, maybe when we haven't got the confidence in ourselves or maybe the breadth or depth of knowledge in terms of our skill set to be able to provide the right tool at that time. And I think to then say, well, actually, here's a gym membership, either for six months, but if you don't go, then we're not renewing it for you. So that's government funding, should we call it? It's never going to work because we need to get into that person's head and help them support them in their world, don't we? What's your barrier to you getting there? Let's co-create those solutions to move forward. Absolutely right. And I think, again, it sort of runs us back to that idea of the middle of the road. I mean, you highlight the gym, which is a really interesting one, because I think one of the critical issues is having the confidence. And the confidence is obviously underpinned by conditioning, but it's also that self-esteem issue to go to the gym in the first place. There is a body of work to get people from the couch to the front door, from the front door to the gym. It's not simply about fitting a new swimming pool, having the latest equipment, or making it 50% cheaper. It is about how does that individual make the changes required to actually go to the gym, not only join the gym, there's another classic, but actually join the gym and participate at the gym. Yeah, to make it affordable. And I think sometimes we have, I don't know if it's a human nature thing, or certainly just my experience with people I work with, and I've even done it myself, where... We want some quick wins, don't we? We want that quick result. Joined for three months. I didn't really enjoy it. The gym was rubbish. The environment wasn't right. It wasn't for me. Rather than let's have a long-term goal and right. I've never been a gym bunny. I've never been into sport. So actually in two years time, I'm going to join the gym. In January 2023, I'm going to join the gym. So that means in January 21, I need to make sure that I'm leaving the house and going for a nice active walk three times a week to get yep. myself active, to condition myself. We can build that up to maybe going for a group walk. So I join a walking club or whatever it needs to be. We have to break ourselves in and have that long-term strategy where I think as a nation, we tend to be short-sighted and just deal with the crocodile closest to the boat. Yeah, we're looking for the shortcut. I don't think that's a unique issue in the UK. I mean, I think if you look internationally, the same problem exists in a number of places internationally, particularly with things like inactivity. And I think you're absolutely right. And it comes back to what we've spoken about before, about goal setting. I think sometimes we sort of think it's a throwaway comment, oh, we'll set some goals. But actually setting goals is really critical if you're going to reach that long-term goal. But I think on top of that is the way in which you set those goals. So there are various different standards that you can use for setting goals. But certainly one of those things is actually about it being timely. You've got to think to yourself, how much time do I need to deliver this? 
And I think when you are talking about lifestyle change from an individual to a business perspective, what you can't do is you can't rush it. And the problem is if you rush it, it's that classic. The average New Year's resolution lasts 21 days. And I would say the primary reason for that is because of timing. We wake up on New Year's Day and we say, right, I'm going to lose three stone by the end of January. And what you do know is that unless you're going to remove a limb, that is never going to happen. <laughs> you know? And so what happens is 7, 14, 21 days in, you stand on the scales, you've lost a pound, and you're thinking, oh, you know, it's lost. And the problem is it's not you that's the problem. It's the goal yeah. that is the problem. It's what you're trying to achieve. And so really what we should be doing, and it goes back to our idea of reflection, is that reflecting back on success or failure gives you the opportunity to see why it wasn't successful if it wasn't successful. But critically as well, I think what often we don't do is actually reflect on success. We sometimes move on too quickly. And I think actually reflecting on success can be as valuable as reflecting on failure. And in doing that, you can then mold and adapt those goals to make sure that you keep moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. And the term we use is alignment with the goals. So obviously, it's really, really important to have goals absolutely all day long. But what I find sometimes is I go, right, this is what you want to achieve. Great. Let's define that. What's it look like? Um, and what do you think the best way to do it is? And more often than not, the first, second, third option they have of the best plan to get there is not the right one for them. And that's them coming up with that solution. For example, somebody wanted to lose weight, their automatic response, because maybe we're programmed that way, so I need to join a gym. Okay, so we write it down as an option and go, well, you've never gone to a gym in your life. So <laughs> is that really going to work now? So it's on a dog leg already because you're already creating barriers to achieving yeah. your goal. So let's yeah. get some alignment of what it is you want to achieve, make sure it's realistic, but also agree on that path that's best for you to get there. Yeah, it's interesting that realism really is quite important. I mean, interestingly, last year, just pre-lockdown, I worked with a client, an American client, lovely fella, uh, Kyle Vogt, his name was, and we broke the world record for seven marathons on seven continents. And if you can believe it, we actually did it in 81 hours, which included running the seven marathons. And I think what was interesting about that is that when I work on challenges like that, it's actually about the structure of the planning that's required in order to deliver that. And generally, the timeliness is my biggest challenge because people often say, oh, I want to do this in six months' time. And you think, ideally, you'd have 18 months preparation for that. The point is that it is possible to do it, but what you've got to think to yourself is that there's a lot more hardship if you're going to do it in a short time. So when it comes to things like weight management, weight management requires physical activity, diet, very importantly, and then things like alcohol. In the early new year, if you're going to do it quickly, you've got to make big changes to an awful lot of your lifestyle, which makes it much more difficult to do, much more difficult to sustain. Yeah. Now, if you can sustain it, you can get those rewards rapidly. But the key issue is that most people struggle with making multiple lifestyle changes simultaneously. That's the big issue. And so I think you're right. And exactly what you do is exactly what I do. And I think often having the guidance of a professional really is very valuable because what they do is that they just enable you to unpick it and make sure that you've got the right structure and the right planning and the right process in place in order to deliver. And that, for me, is the key to it. Yeah, and those true professionals are the ones that, ironically, they're there to get themselves out of a job, if that makes sense, that within a few weeks, potentially maybe a couple of months, you shouldn't need the support. You know what works for you because you've owned it. But they're there from a remote perspective as support if you have a little blip or drop, or it's one more check-in, 6, 12 months, 18 months down the line check in, what are you doing differently? Got off the rails a little bit, right? Let's have a chat around this. What can we do? And off you go again on your merry way. It's a great acid test for people. If you're thinking about working with anybody, whatever it is, what you should always test is the redundancy theory. And that is that the person who is supporting you should be looking at the point at which they're no longer going to support you. Yeah. If you have a conversation with somebody and they say, yeah, in two years time, we'll try this. 
you've got to start thinking to yourself, probably the wrong person to be with. <laughs> That's not to say that you won't be with them in two years' time, but in two years' time, they should be doing something else. Because yeah. if they haven't evoked the change that you're looking for at this specific time, in that period of time, I mean, I see that classically, you know, in my practice, I, well, I won't tell you who it was, but he came in, he said he'd been seeing a physiotherapist twice a week for a year. And I said to him, has he got any better? He said, no. And I said to him, why are you still seeing him? He said, I don't know. I thought I had to. Because he'd been indoctrinated to the process that actually it will get better eventually. You just got to keep coming to see me. To my mind, I always work on the concept that I will be redundant. That's what you should be looking for in people, I think. Of course it is. And I think when you're working with big organizations, whenever we're putting a proposal in, the back end of that initial proposal is we need to start building your internal muscle, your internal capability, yeah. so that yeah. they're on our shoulders at some point, And then all of a sudden they can take over and we can withdraw. And we yeah. can move on to the next project and you're up and running. Because if you constantly got that codependency You'll never be able to stand on your own two feet. And we've got to be clear of that from the start, I think. It's interesting you say that because I was talking an awful lot about intrinsic motivation. We talk ad infinitum about motivation. But I always say, you know, the most important motivation is what people have inside them. We can have extrinsic motivation. So you can have guys like you and I standing by the side of them, supporting them. Equally, you can build in extrinsic motivators. So rewards and prizes, yeah. et cetera. But when push comes to shove, if you're going to be successful in the long term, it's intrinsic motivation that is most important. And if you're working with people who build that intrinsic motivation, that's exactly who you should be with. Yeah, and I think that really chimes with what we're talking about here. Because you're working with good externals, they like that spark. Whether it's a learning culture, a coaching culture, a performance culture, a human approaching work of saying good morning, they've got to want to do that themselves and see the benefit of it. And at some point, if you're not there and you've not done that, then the whole system falls down. And as a coach, trainer, teacher, whatever, actually, it, it doesn't bode well on you if they no. can't stand on their own two feet. Fundamentally, they are your advert. Absolutely. That's the point. And I mean, it really is the point. But it's an interesting one. I think, you know, there is that fear of people who work in this sector. There is a fear of not being in work. And so what they do is that they don't necessarily build in that redundancy. Mm. But I think as a buyer of the service, that should be one of your tests of the value of what you're getting. For sure. I've heard a couple of things you talking about and one of your mantras in particular is that nothing good comes easy. And I think there's a lot of truth in that because change is difficult for us human beings. Doing something new is different. And actually, did I say it? success is different because it's all about that consistency of effort. Consistency is difficult. Yeah, without any shadow of doubt. I think resilience is that ability to keep going despite what appears to be a negative environment. We don't often test our resilience because we live in a nice Western society, fairly affluent. Whereas I think last year really did test people's resilience. And there's a value to that. But certainly without any shadow of doubt, nothing good comes easy. Another mantra I always talk about is that nothing great was ever achieved alone. And I think making sure you've got the right team around you is important in that resilience piece. It's important in that progress piece. We all need support. Whatever level we're at, whatever we're trying to achieve, having the right network and the right team around us is absolutely fundamental. With that, though, I think you need a little bit of humility there to say, I need some help and support you. Things are not quite right. Or if they are okay, they could be so much better if I just open my arms and let people in. Yeah. Towards the end of last year, I worked with Children in Need and Joe Wicks on his challenge for Children in Need, a 24-hour PE lesson it was. It was great fun, actually. I was chatting with him. And then following that, I had a conversation with a whole host of other people. And the one thing that came out of the back of that as a leader is trust. Joe trusted me that what I was doing for him was the right thing that would get him to the end of that 24-hour period. If I look back at people like Davina or David Williams or John Bishop and those guys, fundamentally it comes down to trust. And I think that trust is not won by saying, I am always right. You do what I say. It's not about that. It's actually about that humility piece. And it's also about putting your hands up. We don't always get it right. 
And I think putting your hands up and saying, look, I got it wrong. We should have done it a slightly different way or I could have done it a slightly different way, I think is really important. I think the other thing is actually to make sure that you act on feedback. I see far too many people who ask for feedback and then ignore it. <laughs> it's like, don't ask for feedback if you don't want it and you're not going to do anything with it. Again, that comes down to trust because if people give you feedback and then they see you acting on it, or at least see you considering it and then giving a response which tells them why you're not going to act on it. That is all part of this process of building trust. And I think if you build trust in the people that are around you, it's much easier to affect change because people are coming with you and they will buy into what you're trying to achieve. Mm. That coupled with, of course, communication and great communication makes such a difference. You know, tell people what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve so that you do get that buy-in. And then behavior change it comes along with that. I think when it comes to health and well-being and fitness, for example, I think one of the biggest problems we've got is that we've got a pointy finger approach. The obesity message just basically vilifies people who are overweight. It's not overly helpful when you point the finger saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. And it's no way to lead. There's something to be learned from that. Yeah. Again, that really resonates with our approach because actually sometimes the board or the chief exec will say, right, you need to sort that department out. And I'll say, yes, fine, we'll go in and work with them, but we're starting with you. That's almost the acid test because if they're not willing to be vulnerable and work and collaborate with us and create that alignment again, because the part of the problem what we see sometimes, and I don't know if you see this, Greg, is the lack of clarity on what we're trying to achieve here. What's the intent? Then the next conversation from that effective leader is, so how are we going to do that, guys? And then get their yeah. buy-in and their ownership, because they'll have all the solutions. What was interesting, I think, about last year is that Sean a spotlight on that issue of business by spreadsheet. Our goals next year are to raise profit by this much, to earn this much. Yes, it's a line in the sand. Yes, it's somewhere we're trying to achieve. But the real question is why? Why are we doing that? We've got a multi-million pound business turning over multi-million pounds. And it's a really capitalist approach that it's never enough. In essence, that's what capitalism is. And it's not always a problem. But I think that when you are asking people to work much harder for a gain in the overall organization, the overall structure, and particularly the people that reside above them, there has to be a reason why they should do that. Yeah. And I think it's not good enough just to say to people, I want you to do this because we need to raise more money. You've got to say, why is that? What is that money going to do? It's going to improve the service that you give to the customer. The customer is going to be happier. We're going to make a greater difference, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of different reasons why it could be. It's like me working with somebody saying, I just want you to be healthier. What does that mean? Some of the clients I see, they're happy. Why would I want to be healthier? It's the explanation of the long-term implications of the lifestyle they're currently leading. That can be linked to money. It can be linked to productivity. But equally, it can be linked to long-term health outcomes and quality of life in later life. You're investing into the future. Yeah. But I think having an understanding of why is much more important than having an understanding of what. I couldn't agree more. And I think this is why the rule book of business has been ripped up the last 10, 15, 20 years with the likes of your big fintech companies, your Facebooks, your Google and all that, that. From afar, it looks like it's so flexible. Just come in when you want, do what you want. It's fine. Just sit on a beanbag, have a milkshake. It's all fine. <laughs> well, actually, there's a core ethic of business in there. And a lot of the people that work there and certainly are loyal to the business then get offered shares. So they've got skin in the game. They get told what they're going to do if they get that growth. So if we make X amount, what we're going to do is we're going to pump another 50 million into employee welfare, which means we'll be able to build this campus, build this, build that. We'll be able to give this much to charity. So we'll have a positive impact on that. We'll do this for the environment. So everyone's like, I'm in. I'll, I'll do a bit of discretionary yeah. effort there because everybody's going to win rather than the olden days where the organization was, no, you will work longer because we're paying you that. By the way, we're not paying you overtime, but the company's at its target and therefore the board are happier and then the shareholders are happier. Yeah. There's too much of a disconnect, isn't it? Certainly one of the things that I noticed from last year was the instant migration to home working. 
to my mind, I looked at that and I thought the one thing that they're testing here is trust. And I think prior to lockdown in March of last year, most businesses would have said is, no, we're not going to allow that because we don't trust our workers to do the work at home. And of course, suddenly they're forced to do that. They've got no choice. And so therefore it happens. And then lo and behold, you can trust your workers. I did a number of projects last year with some very big firms. One of the biggest problems was this idea of living at work. And one of the big problems with that were people overworking. It wasn't an underwork issue. It was an overwork issue. And so therefore, you've got issues around mental and emotional health, around physical health, around burnout. You just described the way they approach it in places like Google and Microsoft, et cetera. But it's about trust. Yeah, come in and sit on a beanbag, but we trust you to do the work and you will achieve that goal. And I think if COVID achieved anything that was positive, I think what it has done is changed mentality of trust within the workforce. Couldn't agree more. It forced boards to react because before yeah. it was a board level, you know, where one of my clients, an executive leadership team, is probably the most high-end performing functioning team that responded the best to COVID. And do you know what they did as a priority? Within the first two weeks, there was not one conversation around goals, targets, performance. It was all about welfare. How are you doing? Is the family okay? Have you got the right setup at home? Is there anything you need from us? Is your computer working okay? Do you need better internet? Have you checked in with your team? Can you make sure you do a welfare call to make sure they're okay? If there's any issues, you report it straight to the MD. It was all about settling down. And within two or three weeks, they were off and everybody was happy. And then we had these checkpoints where we were doing welfare check-ins, we were calling them as a leadership and management team. Just pick up the phone and have an old school chat around, hey, how are you doing? Everything okay? Yeah. I tell you what that strikes as well is something that I've worked in a number of big businesses around. And that is this sort of differential between absenteeism and presenteeism. I think what lockdown did for many people is because they were living at work, there was a real fear of moving away from the desk because everyone's on constantly. And so what you did is you drove down absenteeism. And to some extent, that's a very easy thing to achieve because it's very easy to point the finger at somebody who's absent and you can reward lower absenteeism through monetary rewards or whatever it is. So it's very easy to get people at work. The key, though, is about presenteeism, is to make them as productive as possible when they are there. I still come across some firms who don't quite see the distinction. Interesting enough, I did a big project last year with a law firm What was interesting with them, it was increasing physical activity in the workplace. I remember it distinctly. The first conversation I had with them was that lawyers earn money sat in front of a computer. That's the nature of their business. And I was trying to promote more physical activity. Now, that meant potentially more time away from the desk. And you can imagine the pushback from that was, hold on a minute, that's going to change productivity instantly because they're not at the desk. And I said, no, what it will do is it'll improve productivity when they are at the desk. It improves presenteeism. So they might be absent a little bit more because they might not be sat at their desk. But when they're at their desk, they'll be much more productive. We're going to eliminate issues like low back pain or mental health issues and all those type of things. It was a nine-month project. And I remember at the Lawyer of the Year Awards, they actually won Best Health Intervention. And I sat next to the CEO, who was the former CFO. And I said to him, how did the numbers look? And he saw a little wry smile. And he said, yeah, he said productivity was up. And they calculated something like 5 to 10% less time at the desk, and yet productivity had risen. If you create the right environment for people, they become more productive and there's less pressure on what we would perceive to be the only way of increasing productivity. Yeah, and I think that organizations are so sort of hell-bent on measuring everything to the nth degree now. They don't ask themselves what are they measuring and why are they measuring it. If it's a case of clocking in and clocking out, right, our average working hour was 9 a.m. till 9 p.m. That's not something to be proud of. No, no. 
that person could be playing solitaire for three hours with their screen up waiting for the boss to go home just because I think I need to be here as long as the boss is here. And I've actually seen this. Or yeah. I've seen bizarre behavior where somebody's having a conversation with me and they go, give me a second. They go back to the computer and they wiggle their mouse. And I went, what was that for? And they went, oh, because my instant messenger would have gone to sleep and people wouldn't know I was here. So they start thinking if my instant messages are, I'm not on my desk. I went, so what do you do when you go to the toilet? Do you run to the toilet to get back before it falls asleep? Likewise, if you're not there and you're awake and you're not answering, then people think you're being rude. So it just rolls on to this bizarre, yeah. unproductive, unhealthy behavior because that's causing stress for that individual. It's affecting the individual stress. It affects team stress. It affects industry stress. Yeah. And at the same time, is it changing productivity? Yes, it is. It's reducing productivity mm -hmm. because people spend more time worrying about the perception of others than they do on actually delivering the job. Obviously, my area is slightly different, but it's so important that. I think we're coming on to probably one of our latter subjects for the podcast where I want to talk about corporate health and certainly the corporate health environment. I did a little small study with one of my executive boards I'm working with where they were on the verge of burnout, picking up things like, yeah, I've had no leave this year, I've had one week's leave. And I'm like, okay, so that's poor time management then, right? And they're like, what? Nobody's challenged them. No manager or leader's gone, I've noticed you have no time off this year. Are you okay? Is everything all right? Some of them are waking up, having their morning coffee in their PJs at 6.30, 7 a.m. And next thing you know, it's 11 a.m. They haven't had breakfast. The dog hasn't gone for a walk. The kids have got to school somehow. They didn't even know how that happened. They just <laughs> lost all senses. And I was like, right, what I'm going to ask you to do for a month is just to be more selfish. And they went, oh, we can't be selfish. It's not a good thing. I went, no, no, no. Be more selfish so that you look after yourself. Therefore, you have more energy to look after more people. I'm not asking you to be selfish for 24 hours of the day. Just give yourself 20, 30 minutes for me time. And that could well be the school commute. Allow yourself to do the school trip mm -hmm. before starting work. And watch your children as they go to school and watch this smile on their face as they interact with the other kids and reflect on that while driving home rather than thinking, right, I need to get back to that email, get on that project, just be a bit more present. Is that something that resonates with you? Again, as you're saying that, you look at 2020 as a year and I would say that the light was completely shone on this area of mental and emotional health. Something that became part of the genre of the era something that was a taboo subject prior to that. And I think it really did highlight the key issue. We are a social animal. And actually, our ability to interact with others is really, really important. And March and April, you know, the virtual meetings were like the panacea. You know, they were the solution. And of course, as the year went on, they sort of waned and waned, and people just got absolutely sick of doing them. And it's because it's not personal. There is no social interaction really on that. Having the screen on does help. But even then, the bottom line is it's just a phone call. We like people. We like to be around people. We are a social animal. And I think also physical contact in that was really important. Sometimes we sort of forget that importance because we rush to work. We get to our desk as quickly as we can. We'd smash out as much work as we possibly can. We have a half-hour lunch break, but we don't get up from our seat. We actually have it at the desk so we can carry on. And then once we finish, we have to rush back because we're running late and X and Y. We forget about ourselves. And I think you're right. I think selfish is an interesting word in it because it's got particular connotations. But I think it's about being more self-aware of yourself, not self-aware of others, self-aware of you and what you're going through and how you're responding. Because I think that that is something that fundamentally obviously underpins productivity at work, but equally is productivity at home. It's yeah. happiness. It's interaction with your family. It is being fundamentally a nice person. 2020 should have shone the spotlight on that for many people to make sure they do look after themselves. Yeah, definitely. And tying nicely into that self-awareness is that level of self-regard. I think that's what ties into what we're talking about, this physical and mental health, that make sure you're looking after yourself. It's the old adage of being on a plane, you put your own oxygen mask on first before you help other people. Because if you don't do that, then you can't help anybody. You might help the person next to you, but that's it. Because of course, we can be that natural altruistic person that's all about rescuing and saving everybody else. 
And then we burn ourselves out that way as well, don't we? I think you're definitely right. And I think actually what we have to remember is that big things can be achieved by small changes. And I think being a little bit more self-aware, looking after yourself a little bit more, doesn't require massive change. The average office worker sits down for nine to 10 hours a day. That is three quarters of their waking life sat down. And that has got profoundly negative connotations for physical, mental and emotional health. Ironically, I mean, I worked with some people last year during lockdown, and believe it or not, there were some people I worked with who did less than 100 steps a day. Because what they did is they got out of bed, they took the stairs down into their office, they sat at their office till lunchtime, they walked to the kitchen, walked back to the office, and then walked to the sofa, and then walked back to bed. And you sort of think, well, that is one end of that spectrum. But actually, there's an awful lot of people who will get to work, they'll drive around the car park until they can find the closest spot to the door. They walk to their desk and sit down and they're there for nine, 10 hours plus. And then they get back in their car. They drive home. I call it the box culture. They get in their box. They drive their box to work. They sit in front of their box at work. They get back in their car, in their box to drive home. And then they go home and sit on the sofa in front of the box. What you've got to think to yourself is just small changes in that. So at lunchtime, going out for a lunchtime walk in the great outdoors, a little bit of natural light exposure, changing things like vitamin D. Yeah. And actually making it social, so walking with somebody else. It's not a big imposition on your lifestyle. It doesn't really affect business, but my God, it would have such a profound effect on your health. Much of the new things that we're launching this January are based around those small steps to achieve big aims. Yeah, it makes such a difference. And I'll just share a little story with you that one of my clients in the city of London, a couple of the guys there, what they would define themselves, and I'm probably one to be fair, a coffee snob. So they like particular good coffee and it's something to do with probably cycling, certainly the triathlon world. <laughs> yeah. And their best independent coffee shop, because they wanted to support them, was a 10 minute walk away from the office. And we can never quite get there. So we have to use maybe one of the major chains around the corner. So I said, why can't you get there? It's a 10 minute walk. So imagine that there, five minutes to get your coffee, 10 minute walk back, that's 25. Or do you have your business meeting where you're walking all the way there, talking, get your coffee, go around to the local park? God forbid, sit on a lunchtime in a fresh air, vitamin D. Imagine that. Stopping, taking in the river and coming back. And you'd probably solve most of your problems, two, three, four of you. So that's what they did religiously three times a week. Monday, Wednesday, Friday was their coffee hour. And they ended up creating a bit of a movement. What we found as well was walking and talking is so good for the soul because it's non-confrontational. Yep. You're not sat across the desk. You're not sat in a meeting room. You're actually walking side by side. And therefore, you'll talk a little bit more freely. So we found that they had richer, deeper conversations by getting outside and walking and talking and obviously all the other benefits that we've discussed. It's intriguing, isn't it? And I think what also happens then is that you get cultural change. And I think, again, if we think back to lockdown, for me, one of the things that we do very badly is planning physical activity, health promotion, behavior change. We just don't plan it. And in fact, if you put in your diary, 12 to 1 lunch, that's where you are. People won't hassle you. And if they do hassle you, they need to get a life. <laughs> And if you're out of the office, you can't answer the email and you can't answer your phone because you're not in office and you shouldn't be there because it is lunch break. And then what suddenly happens is that everybody else starts to see that and think, oh, that's a really good thing. Because when they come back from lunch, all of a sudden, they're so much more productive and they get things smashed out. It's incredible. And they're in a better mood and they smile a bit more and et cetera, et cetera. But I think what underpins all of that is actually planning. I think let people know, communicate to people what's going on. And it does make a big difference. It's almost like what we do is we think, oh, we shouldn't tell anybody about that, but we're actually going to go and have a coffee or have some lunch or go and have a talk. And if I don't put it in my diary, nobody will know. God forbid anybody's proactive and they think, right, during my lunch hour, I'm going to nip to the local shop because I need to pick something up for my other half's birthday and bring it back to the office because I'll get judged on that. You've gone shopping in work's time. No, I've gone shopping in my lunch break, which saves me having <laughs> to come all the way back into the city on the weekend. 
So that's how I've used it productively, rather than being prejudged and these rules made up that create the culture. But it made yeah. me think how strong was that command and control culture of that organization for people to perceive the situation to be like that? And until you talk about it, though, going back to what we talked about right at the start and iron out that intent and the expected behaviors and the open culture that a lot of companies are striving for now, it's really difficult to change that, isn't it? It is. I mean, I sort of think about it when I work with elite sport. One of the most difficult things in elite sport is to get athletes to recover. Now, you sort of think that's ridiculous. Of course, they'll recover. They don't. And it is the same as the business model. And that is that the pressure is from the top down. Because in sport, it's about funding. Funding follows medals. And so it's all about medals. And how do you win medals? You win medals by training hard and long and continually. And so then that drips down from the very top, from the funders into the performance directors, into the coaches, into the athletes. And so because of that, what you do is you set a culture that runs across the organization, which is you must be training all the time. You must be working all the time. Elite sport, it's a wonderful analogy because actually in sport, what we know is that adaptation, it runs this thing called a super compensation cycle. So basically what you do is you induce stress. And with that stress, you get a reduction in performance. But once you remove that stress, you then get this rebound where performance starts to rise again. And optimizing that recovery is absolutely fundamental to the rebound of that performance. What people have to then do is trust the fact that recovery is going to help them perform because they're sat doing nothing. And how can that possibly be positive for performance? But equally, it's the same for the business when we're talking about healthy lifestyles, healthy approaches, is by saying if you're more physically active through the day, to some extent, it's a recovery from being at the desk. But that recovery piece, that physical activity is going to make a profound impact on your performance when you are at the desk. Yeah, It's changing that culture. And again, business is the same. It's all down. As soon as the board don't believe it, all of a sudden that influence is going to drip right through the business. So I think actually it's about addressing what's going on at the top to make sure that what happens across the industry changes. I couldn't agree more. And there's a few things bouncing around my mind there. You were chatting about the athlete that maybe goes to a competition on a Sunday, doesn't perform particularly well feels the pressure all night, doesn't sleep, but then gets up 6am on a Monday morning and goes for a 10-hour bike ride because that's the right thing to do and hammer themselves. <laughs> it's almost like back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, isn't it? Rather than knowing, well, actually, I probably need a day off my bike, need to recover properly, get my nutrition right, and then go again. Do you know what? It's a great story on that. I used to be a director of research at the British Olympic Medical Centre, so I looked after the prep of five Olympic teams. I remember in Tallahassee, training camp out there, I remember watching a coach once and it took a group of athletes. They just arrived. So they jet lagged. It was incredibly hot, very, very humid. Out they go for their session too early, not prepped. They should be recovering, but they went out for a session and did badly. And the response of the coach to that the following day was to beat them up in the training session and was to punish them for not doing well the day before. It was one of those ones you sort of looked at, you thought, really? You think that's going to be helpful? And of course, in the subsequent three days after that, performance was through the floor. Because the reason they performed badly wasn't because of lack of effort. It was environment. You reflect on why something has happened. And if you do that, you'll understand what the reasons were. And then you can make changes to those reasons rather than just sort of taking this carte blanche approach, which is, as a business, we're not earning enough money. The way forward is just to work harder. How many people have solved their turnover problem with just simply working harder? Because if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, from a business context, wherever you are within a business organization is when you've got a problem, you very rarely solve the problem by staring at your screen for 12 hours and not moving. You know, you solve it when you turn your conscious brain off, you step away from your computer, you go for the walk, you go to the toilet, whatever it is. 
or at some point in the night when you're doing something automatic like a shower or making a cup of tea it'll just come to you because you've distracted yourself away from the problem so you've let your brain naturally work it out and i think it's an experiment in itself right you've got a problem you just got to stay at your screen for 12 hours try and solve it it's never going to happen <laughs> just get that little break state let your natural brain chemistry kick in and then i'm sure you'll come up with a solution anybody's written a book and i've written eight books <laughs> will know that your best work is never done in the last four hours of an eight hour day i'll tell you that <laughs> no i can imagine it's not you find your own little sweet spot the best writing i've ever done was out on the run and that's the truth of it you know so i think you're right when it comes to that sort of health aspect i think it is about making small changes it is around activity it's around nutrition it's around things like smoking cessation and alcohol reduction it's about optimizing sleep and recovery. It's about things like the gut microbiome. I did an awful lot across lockdown talking about immune health. Obviously, COVID shone a spotlight on immune health. But I think many of the things we talk about in that are relatively easy things to do. They're not major lifestyle changes, but accumulated. They can have a profound impact on our health. And I think that's what we should be looking for. Rather than trying to make one big change, which is very difficult to be consistent with, it's just about making lots of small changes to bring about an overall big change. Yeah, and it's a different mindset shift, isn't it? When you're looking at 100% change or 101% changes, which one's going to have the biggest impact? Well, you're probably not going to stick to the 100% change because it's so far off where your yeah. center core is, for sure. Listen, yeah. Greg, we could chat for hours. I've got no <laughs> doubt about that. But what I want to do before we finish is a little quick-fire quiz, put you on the spot. You get to choose one, your favorite, and tell us why. Swim, run, or bike? Swim. It's where I came from as a kid. I started swimming when I was five, national champion at 11. But of late, and certainly since I started training David Williams for the channel back in 2006, I came across open water swimming. And it is, for me, the absolute panacea. If you want to escape, open water is where it's at. You're open water and swimming. Have you linked any of that to this cold water therapy that's sort of a craze at the minute and has been for a couple of years? In terms of the science behind that, it's looking pretty strong, isn't it? Yeah, very strong. And towards the end of 2020, I, along with a colleague of mine, Mike Tipton, we wrote the expert statement on health and performance in the cold. I worked with Her Spirit, a charity for women. And what we did is we set the winter swim challenge for them, which was effectively 10 minutes of open water swimming every week across the winter. Properly tough challenge. And we've done an awful lot around pain reduction and cold open water swimming around various brain proteins, one in particular, which is linked to Alzheimer's and the role of that in cold open water swimming. There's some really great work. And a lot of why I push it is actually around mental health. There's some really nice work showing improved mental health and actually a treatment for disorders like depression, certainly mood disturbance, where cold open water swimming can have a really profound effect. So it is a great medium. But off the back of all of that, what I would say is what's critical is you do it safely. Of course. Safety is key. Brilliant. Okay, back to the quickfire quiz. Sporting hero. Oh, that is a tough one. Yeah, honestly, my dad. Brilliant. Non-sporting hero. These are tough questions, man. Wow. Come back to me on that one. Go to the next one, I'll never think. It might be the same answer as the question. <laughs> <laughs> Proudest moment. I won a silver medal at the World Modern Pentathlon Championships in 1994, and it was my proudest moment because my dad watched it. Oh, amazing, amazing. Your next big goal, personal. Next big goal is planning to swim the Tidal Thames, 135 miles as quickly as possible. So we're sort of aiming for circa three days to set a new record. Is that for 2021? Summer 2021, yeah. So oh. this summer, yeah. And we had planned it for last year, but sadly we can do it. There you go. I think we've covered a million of these, but what's your top three tips for a healthy lifestyle? Be more active more often. It doesn't matter what it is, movement counts. It could be just walking around the block. It could be taking the stairs, but just more active more often. 
I think when it comes to diet, eat the rainbow and make it yourself. And I think thirdly is respect recovery, optimize sleep and make sure you take time to recover. We could have another podcast just on sleep because that's fascinating <laughs> and that for performance gain. So I'll come back to it then, non-sporting hero. My mum. Ah, balanced it up. Love it. Well, yeah, she was an absolute legend. I would never be where I am today without either my mum or dad. Ah, brilliant. And I'm sure that'll resonate with a lot of people listening today. Greg, appreciate your time. I'm sure the guys have engaged with this. For those that are listening, we've put all Greg's contact details in the comments below and in the bio for this podcast. Yeah, great. Hopefully we can catch up again next year, mate. I really appreciate it. I love chatting I to you. I really look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to chat. No, thanks very much, mate. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.